Today's scripture reading is Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Amen. Hi, good morning again. That uh, passing the piece was great, right? I don't know if it was the SNL skit or the Fonz. Hey, hey, hey. We, we, I think we don't need to do that more often. Um, good morning again. Welcome to Redeemer Lincoln Square. Before we begin looking at this text, I want to just direct your attention one more time to uh, the Connect brochure, and particularly the generosity section down here in the bottom. Uh, last month, we shared about how our giving finished in 2019, and we said we were making plans for 2020, and since then, we've actually been giving approval for our budget, and as you can see here in our Connect brochure, it's uh, just over $3 million, which is just slightly higher than last year, um, and now that we're well into 2020, I would like to also highlight that we've, we've um, it's all, quarter one's almost over, and this is how much we've brought in. And we're a little bit behind, and so now I'd love for you to, now that we know what our goal is, to prayerfully consider about what it might look like for you to join our family in giving throughout the year. Um, So it's right here. Take a look at it if you can, and pray through it uh, throughout the upcoming weeks. We've been looking at the book of Galatians, trying to figure out what might the engine be for us to go out into the world. We all go out, we go out for pizza, we go out to the movies, but those are always for ourselves. What's going to push us out into the lives of others beyond consumption? And this is, by the way, a question that I think is very tantamount right now because all New Yorkers are gonna have to ask themselves, how are we going to, in the the next couple weeks, how are we going to go out uh, to be and care for other people? What's the balance of moving into the other people's lives versus actually safety for our own? And um, I think Paul, for us today, he interrupts his regularly scheduled programming, his logical flow of argumentation. Throughout Galatians, he's going one, two, three, four, and he almost stops because he's taking inventory like a teacher in a room of students that they see that, uh, maybe the teacher sees that they're, they're not really fully focused, and so they start clapping their hands, trying to refocus individuals. Paul's doing just that. He's making an appeal to their senses. He's looking us right in the eye in verse eight and says, essentially, what are you doing? Right, you didn't know God, now you know God, so why are you putting yourself back into enslavement? And by the end of the passage, look at verse 11. He says, I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I mean, you can can hear the emotion in his voice. I'm sure some of you have felt this way before, yeah, as well, you've, you've been so exasperated, you're kind of like, I'm done, I'm over it. You say, maybe about yourself or someone else, you say, seriously, again? You know, you know, why are you doing what you're doing? What are you doing? These are sort of existential identity questions filled with exasperation. He's exasperated not just because they are enslaving themselves, they're doing it again. Look at verse eight, right? Formally, in the past, There are things, he calls them, those who by nature were not gods, they were enslaving you. But then in verse nine, the very next verse, he says, but now 
Now what? Now, now you are, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? But in verse 10, in verse 10, it's actually a different set, a different set uh, uh, force that's actually enslaving them now. And so the passage, I think, actually has three sections here. We're going to look at the idols that they used to serve, the idols that they're about to serve, and then the antidote for all idols. Let's do, let's do it today. What are the idols we used to serve? What might the idols be that we're about to serve? And then what might be the antidote for all idols? So first, the idols that we used to serve. And this first word here, formally, gives the chronological situation Paul wants to focus on. He says, hey, I want to look at the past, that you used to serve things in the past. Well, what was that past? Well, for Galatian Gentiles that came out of a Greco-Roman world, it was probably some level of Greco-Roman gods and goddesses that they used to worship. And there was many of them. There was what? The god of, there was Aphrodite, the god of sex and love. You had Mars, the god of war. You had uh, Hermes, who was the god of commerce and travel. Which, side point, a lot of millennials are kind of down on capitalism. That's what the surveys show. So they're down on the god of, of, of commerce. But Hermes is the god of commerce and travel and experience. <laughs> so, you know, you have the baby boomers that are all about commerce. And you have the millennials that are all about travel. Maybe they're not so different. All right, moving on. That's, that really has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But it's always interesting. Here's the point. Mytho- Greek mythology had a God for everything. And it didn't matter if you actually really believed these gods or not. Because what Paul's getting at here is that you can still place yourself under their authority. That they're actually still controlling you if you're putting your time and your attention, if you're putting your actions under them. If it changes how you live your life, then they have power over you. And he called, this, is, this is idolatry. So for instance... If you believe that you need to live for sex, if sex is going to be the thing that defines you, that you change your life about, that you change your actions about, this is what's going to make life worthwhile, this is what's going to make happiness come into your life, this, is who, this will change who you hang out with, who you pursue, what you put your efforts towards. And this, by the way, this is whether it could be commerce, it could be experiences, it could be um, money, If you get your happiness or your identity or your meaning through these things, then they actually have power over you. So how you should ask, okay, how do you know if you're actually enslaved by them, if they have you in their grips? Well, it's one thing to care about your job. It's another thing if you're getting your status from your job. And so the question is, of course, we have to ask ourselves, how do you know if a job is just a job? Well, you kind of don't know unless the job's taken away from you. And then if it is, is your sadness in the proper proportion to the hurt that happens when, you take it, when a job's taken away? Or does it have an outsized space in your life? Some of you here are going, well, that's not me. You know, job, job's just a job for me. Um, but then the question is, is then why, are, why are there so many folks in New York City willing to sacrifice their friendships, their relationships, their families for their job? And you say, no, 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 I would never do that. But here's the thing. This church was started three years ago. We asked a lot of you, we said, what do you want? What do you need in a church? And a lot of you said, oh, I would love more classes and more discipleship and the church more involved in my life. 
and we provide those things, and it was time to sign up, and you're like, oh, oh, you know what? I don't have the time. See, what is that? A lot, I, think, I think a lot of us as modern people, we look back on other cultures, and we can go, look how regressive. Human sacrifice, how primitive. How primitive that they, that they would do that. But what do you think we're doing when we're overworking and we don't have time for each other? That's, that's a type of human sacrifice. That we're watching before us a loneliness explosion, a depression explosion, anxiety is increasing everywhere, and in part it's because we've overvalued our entertainment, our technology, our jobs, our, our, maybe even our, ourselves. And so this is why it's so fascinating that you, you see it all the time. People are like, oh yeah, small group. Oh, I'd love to meet up with you individually. Let's, and they break out their phones, and they're like, when do you have time? And often it's like, oh, a couple months from now? Does that work? That's human sacrifice. And so I, I always get a little bit of a chuckle when people in the city, um, we, we have a lot of relationships with folks in our, in our building. People find out I'm a, I'm a minister, and they go, oh, Good for you. I'm so glad you're religious. You got religion. That's good for you. Me, I'm not so religious. And I, what Paul is trying to get at here is if you do not believe in the gospel, do not kid yourself. You've placed yourself under some other entity. And that is religion. See, religion doesn't have to be spiritual so much. A broad definition of religion is any habit, practice, or action that controls your thoughts, motives, and feelings. I'll put that out again, just so you can get this. A broader definition is if your habits, if your practices, if your actions, those things, whatever they are, they control your thoughts, motives, and feelings. That's religion. And it can be sex, money, power. It can be approval, comfort, control. It can, it can be anything. And if you do the little bit of introspection, even if you're not a Christian here today, you will find there are things we've placed ourselves under that we use to define us. And those things functionally are our gods. And you know, Paul says that they're by nature not actually gods, but that's how they're functioning. And so that's your belief system. And so just P.S., those things aren't actually working either. There was an interesting interview a couple weeks ago uh, in the New York Times, an uh, interview of Ben Affleck, who was speaking about a new movie that he was putting out. He plays an alcoholic in this movie and he's, in the interview, he's talked about how that was something personally he struggled with as well. And he said this. He said, hey, people have this kind of basic discomfort all the time that they're trying to make go away. You're trying to make yourself feel better with eating or drinking or sex or gambling or shopping or whatever. But that ends up making your life worse. Then you do more of it to make that discomfort go away. Then... The real pain starts, and it becomes a vicious cycle that you can't break. I thought this was really, really self-reflective of Ben Affleck. But he is saying, it's not just what you use. He already says, you're using something. But when your life gets worse, what do you use to get over that? And he, you know, it, it, to make yourself get better. What's covering that? See, it's one thing to say, oh man, I'm bummed that this, this relationship I was looking towards that I thought was gonna mean something to me, it's gone. I guess I'll throw myself into my work. At least I got that. I, I, you know, the looks, my looks that I used to trade off of and people really liked me because of them and that they're starting to fade. I'll throw myself into my kids. At least I wanna make sure they're successful. 
I per, if, if I want to personalize this, I remember growing up um, here in the city uh, as, as a middle schooler. It was a pretty hard time in my life. Um, I wasn't well liked by my peers. I was, I was beat up a lot. That's, that's, we won't go there. Um, but it was, it was rather difficult. I actually remember the day I was standing in my living room. I think I was in seventh grade. And my mom was yelling at my brother because he was overspending and he was buying too many things. And I remember going to myself, I go, you know what? I'm gonna be the cheap one. <laughs> I'm gonna be the one who saves everything. And then the world will know. <laughs> then my family will know that I don't spend money. I'm not gonna let money control me like my brother over there. Which is fascinating because, right, you can have money control you by overspending, but you can have money control you by underspending. It's still controlling. And so I guess what I would like you to do before we move on is this. What are the things of nature that you've placed yourself under? And I want you, you need to do this first because there's no way that you're going to be able to see what is offered in Jesus. You're not even gonna care really to take a real serious look at him as long as you think these other things are providing for you. You need to see first and identify these idols and admit that they can't give you what they're actually promising. What are those things? What are they? Now, secondly, uh, the idols that you just formerly served, but now the idols that you are about to serve. As noted, Paul's real fear here is actually not about the ones we just covered. Right? He, he, it's actually easier to identify money, sex, power, approval, comfort, control. You can find those things out, play out their promises, and you'll see that they don't actually deliver on what they're offering. His real worry was not those things. Those, those, formally, you did that. Now, though, you're about to, you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces. Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? But now, what are they? Verse 10. You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. You say, well, what is that? A lot of commentaries point this out. That is a reference towards the high holy days, the Jewish high holy days that were around. Sorry about my headset today. Um, and there's a reference towards that. Gentiles didn't normally celebrate those high holy days. But they were now turning to them as the grounds by which they were saved by. They were giving themselves into these, this religious formality. The religiosity had become the new thing. They'd given up money, sex, and rock and roll, but now they've actually brought in law, ceremonies, and religious holidays. And so there's actually two ways, there's always been two ways to miss Jesus, even today. There's the Greco-Roman way, which is you do you. Give yourself into your passions. Throw yourself into something that you think is gonna make you happy and then maybe that'll make you really happy. The Judaizers here were saying, no, 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 no. Shut down the passions. Throw yourself into the things we tell you to put yourself into and that's what's really gonna make you happy. But you can wrongfully get your identity from running away from God but you can equally get away and wrongfully get your identity by thinking that you're running to God. And so I think getting really moral through religious legalism is every bit as idolatrous as following out your own passions. So it, Paul's saying, don't just get more religious. Different masters, same bondage. Whatever you're doing here today, don't think this we're saying, just get more religious, get a little bit more God in your life. Because what's stunning about this passage is I think most people today would say the way of the world and the way of religion are opposite ways. 
And Paul's saying, no, 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 they're absolutely the exact same thing. That at the end of the day, you're still being your own Lord and Savior. You're clearly doing that in career, sex, power. You're, 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 these categories, you're evaluating your status based on how well you're performing in those things. What he's saying is more insidious, what, what's more um, dark actually, is that in religion, through the works of the law and being religious and being a good person and look what I'm doing right, you're still gauging your acceptability in those spaces. And then actually they're still both essentially about you at the end of the day. And so friends, I can't overstress this enough. Paul is saying, sure, 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 moral lapses, you can mess up through those things. But the greater danger to your soul is probably not your bad deeds, it's your good ones. And what he's trying to get at is, sometimes the reason why wrong is happening in your life, it might be an obvious broken sin, it might be the world is broken, it might be somebody else's brokenness, but more often than not, it's because you think you're not broken when you really are. I think the darker sins out there are the ones that hide as light. That's what Paul's trying to get at. The darker sins always hide as light. You say, hey, 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 I'm not being prideful, I'm just right. (laughs) No, 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 this isn't a lack of generosity, I'm just asking people to be accountable for what they're doing. You see how dark that is, actually? That if an idol is anything that can sit in the place of God, in the place where only he should function. If it's taking something, often good, and making it more essential to your being and knowledge and identity than him, well, then that means a lot of good things can, ultimate, can operate as ultimate in our life. So in other words, here's another way of doing it. If you're more concerned about being right than loving, it's probably an idol in your life. If you're more concerned about fairness than generosity, it's probably an idol in your life. If you're more concerned about being in the kingdom of God than actually concerned for people who are out of the kingdom of God, that's actually probably an idol too. In a few weeks, we're gonna go into the next chapter. We're gonna look at the fruit of the spirit. And so we're gonna tease out what this actually might look like. But for now, what Paul wants you to focus on and really dig into, what might be the good things that you've done or are doing in your life that the world might even validate but the way they're functioning is you've twisted them and you're, you're, they're actually technically operating against who God is. At least you've, you've, you've used it as a performance-based vehicle for yourself out into the world. What might those things be? Those are the idols that we're about to or are giving ourselves into. So, last point. What might the antidote be then for all these idols? If the devil can get you coming or he can get you going, if you can't make any, if you can make anything more important than him in your life, living a life unto myself or living in what I think is to God but really still about me, what might the antidote be if stu- humans are stuck anyway? Idolatry, all this talk about idolatry, if you wanna get at the essence of it, we're talking about identity. And Paul gets at the essence of this in the most important verse in this text, which is this, the verse, it's verse nine. But now that you know God, uh, 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 excuse me, sorry, or rather are known by God. See, what's he saying here is this. Yes, 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 you have to know God. There's content to believe. But the Greek word to know is so complex. For us, it's a content word. 
But in the Bible, a lot of times the word to know is used about sexual relations. It's that kind of complexity, that deep oneness, that deep closeness, that kind of intimate relationship that's possible is what it means to be known. Uh, my wife's grandparents, um, uh, they lived into their 90s. They, they, they were raised here in the city. Uh, and two days before Sarah's grandmother's um, 70th anniversary, she died. And I remember um, Sarah's grandfather, actually that whole next year, he kept saying, I don't want to go another anniversary without her. And one day before what would have been the 71st anniversary, he died. And a lot of the data shows this. The statistics show that this happens all the time, that people have been together most of their lives. When one dies, the other does pretty quickly as well because it's like they had been known. And then when that entity's taken away, they don't know what it's like. They don't feel like they can exist anymore. They're not known anymore. Paul is saying, yeah, 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 you need to know God, but knowing God's not enough. You wanna know why? You can't know all of God. Your knowledge of God at some level is limited. In fact, there's gonna be days that you think you know God. There'll be good days and there'll be bad days. Your knowledge of God is, is, is incomplete and therefore, that's not enough. More importantly, rather, you are known by him. And this isn't cognitive knowledge. This is not an intellectual exercise we're talking about. This is a deep, personal understanding that Paul is saying is the ultimate way that you actually know that you're a Christian. It's not what you do. It's not what you don't do. Ultimately, it's your knownness. That, you, that he knew you long before you knew him. And the best way Paul could actually convey this is not in our passage. It was the one that Joe looked at the week before when he went to adoption as the best way to try to articulate what this might feel like in your life. I don't know if you know this, but there's only two ways in the world that you can be somebody's child, either by birth or by adoption. But either way, the process is the same. There's a waiting, there's a going, and there's a pain. There's a waiting, going, pain. In actual childbirth, when you're uh, pregnant, there is a waiting. There's a waiting, there's a leading up to, there's an expectation waiting period. Obviously, in childbirth, there is a going, there's a happening. And then there's a costliness, and I'm not talking just medical bills. I'm talking the costliness of childbirth, the, the, the pain of it is costly. But adoption is actually very similar. If you've ever known somebody or if you've ever adopted yourself, the waiting period is excruciating. Often it's, it's two, four, it could be six years. It's on, it's off, up and down. The emotional roller coaster that you go through is terrible and takes... Pr- uh, patience and presence. But then there's actually a going too. In the adoption phase, there is a going. You have to go collect your child. And if it's an international adoption, sometimes the journey is far and long. And there's a costliness as well. Tens of thousands of dollars, applications, time, your nerves spent. And there's a costliness, of course, um, to both adoption and childbirthing, right? When you're raising that child... That child is taking up your time and your money. We, call, we say your time, your talents, and your resources. You're sorry, your, your time, your talents, and treasures. We actually say that about any kind of family. We, we talk about our own church family. What will it take for you to be part of Lincoln Square to give your time, your talents, and your treasures? We just talked about it before we started the sermon. 
that at some level, that's what it means to be family, to share those things. And yet what Paul's saying is in adoption, it's the exact same thing. That's how you, when you the way you're gonna know that you're known by God is that you actually live into your adoption. That yes, Jesus forgave you of your sins. That's the mechanism by which it happens. But at the end of the day, it means your family. And that means as your, your father, he will never leave you. What if you knew how he waited and how he went and how he paid? Right, the God of the universe waited a long time to bring us back, right? At just the right time. He waited centuries for Jesus to be sent into the world. And then when he actually was sent, right, there was a going, when he, when he actually came down from heaven and lived and died, that's where the costliness is found too, right? It ended up costing not just his life, but the interpersonal relationship of the Trinity to bring you back into the family. And so that's the essence of the Christian life. You can intellectually know all about God and his love, you can intellectually know about God's goodness, but you know what? I've talked with a lot of you. You still say, I don't feel his love and his goodness. And the reason why at the end of the day is because we haven't settled into our adoption. Did you know that um, back during this time, I, I did some research, that legally back then, you could disown your son or your daughter. You could write them out of the will. You're no longer part of this family. But if you were a slave, and at great cost, you could actually have your slavery purchased. You'd be purchased out of slavery and you could be adopted into the family. Legally speaking, if that is you, you cannot ever be disowned again. They said it was wrong, it'd be wrong. You could, you're not allowed to be kicked out. Once you're brought in, you can't be kicked back out. And Paul knew that and he's laying into that imagery and he's saying, that's us. We were slaves, but we were adopted in as sons and daughters and once in, always in. It's against the law, right? You can leave him, of course, but he will never leave you. And if you knew your knownness, if you really knew what it meant, then you could approach him. Then, then all the things of a proper relationship of a child and a father could apply to you, right? The earlier chapter talked about crying out, Abba, Father, Daddy. Do you go to him in that kind of intimacy? Do you ask the kind of crazy things kids ask of their fathers, right? Daddy, I want that building over there. Can I have that building? Do we come to God with that kind of expectation that we can ask him for anything? I see kids launch themselves at their fathers with reckless abandon, knowing that they're gonna be caught. I don't know how they know, but they just know they're gonna be caught by, that, by their father. Do you launch yourself in reckless abandon to him? That's what it means to be known. That you, that you, that, and I mean, here's another one. How, you know what you can do with a good father? This is, this is great. Here's what you can do with a good father. Nothing. You could actually just sit and be. There's no expectation to perform or placate or explain or, or, or perform. The great thing about a good father is you could just be with them. And I know our earthly fathers have been poor examples of this. A lot of us have had really broken relations with our fathers. I know as a father, I woefully do not live up to the expectation and need that I need to give to my children. But you know what? The heavenly father is different. He is perfect. And there is therefore nothing that can actually ever make him less of your father. Just like for my kids, I, 
My kids can, you know, there's nothing I can do to make my kids less, make me less of their father just in the same way. We will never be, he will never be less of our father. That we are first and foremost sons and daughters. Christianity, this is what's so crazy about it. The essence of Christianity is not what you do. It's not a system. It's not a code. It's not an activity or a work. It's your status as sons and daughters. And I really wonder and I really worry that we haven't let that penny drop in our lives. We haven't let ourselves sit in that space I, you know, I think the reason why is our culture doesn't want us to sit. Culture makes a lot more money out of anxious, busy, self-actualizing people that are spending tons and tons of money to try to get and get and get. And right here we're told, sit, stay, rest, settle into your adopted nature. I think one of the great purposes of the Bible, of reading your Bible, of praying and meditating on it, is actually just to remind ourselves of who you are. That you're not primarily your vocation. You're not primarily what you produce. You're not primarily your marital status. You're not primarily your carbon and your atoms, your physicality of it. You're primarily sons and daughters, which means communion with God. Union with, union with God is the ultimate thing. My wife, Sarah, uh, was adopted, actually. You should talk to her about it sometime. It was actually kind of interesting. They, they, they're... Um, her parents are New Yorkers. They, they're kind of uh, olive skin, such as myself. They're Italian-American from New York. They talk like this. And they moved to Memphis, actually, because adoption, adoption in the 70s was better down there. My wife's a little more of the pasty white kind of color. Um, her brothers are black. And so walking down the streets of Memphis, people were kind of like, wait, does that add up? What's going on there? But when she was three, when she was really little, she used to walk up to complete strangers. You know what she used to say? She goes, I'm adopted, which means my mommy, my daddy chose me. <laughs> That's what she would say. I'm adopted, which means my mom, my, yeah, exactly, yes. My, she, she would go up to people and go, my mommy, my daddy, they actually wanted me. <laughs> which of course I don't think the implicit thing was that maybe your, kid, you know, your parents didn't have a choice, sorry. <laughs> I don't think that was the idea. The idea was this. She knew that she was loved and she knew she was loved because of her adoption. She laid into that adoption. She was proud of it. Why? Because she knew that she was sought after through adoption to be wanted. The beauty of being chosen, adoption meant that her parents came after her, pursued her, desired her, and she felt that love. The power of the new identity of adoption means that you were chosen too, that you were long sought after as well. That you were his and his alone. And so I guess the question is, is do we seek him at least at the same level that he sought after us? Instead of sitting around going, oh, I don't feel like God pursues me. No, if you're adopted, you have been pursued. Will you lay into, why, and ask yourself, why am I not pursuing him back? It's like this every week, I think. We're trying to re-remember our adoption. Um, John Newton tried to remember. John Newton um, participated in probably one of the worst atrocities in the world ever with the African-American slave trade. He was on these slave boats. And he actually, his mom died when he was seven. He joined a boat and started working on it when he was 11. Interestingly enough, 
275 years actually to this day. I think it was, it's March, it was March 10th, 1748. He writes about it later. It was a huge storm. He, he knew he was going down. It was, life was over and he gave himself, he called out to God. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. I, I'm a Christian. And he, and he became a Christian on that moment. And he goes on and he wrote Amazing Grace, one of our main Western hymns. But later on, he knew that he was prone to forgetfulness and he knew that he needed to be reminded of, of what God did for him. And so at home, he actually had written and drilled into the walls of his study a verse from Deuteronomy 15, 15. This is what it says. Thou shalt remember that thou was a slave in thy land of Egypt and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. I'm not saying you need to drill holes into your apartment with scripture, but maybe you do. He hung these verses that actually reminded him of what he participated in, which I find fascinating. Every day he saw the reminder of his lowest low, but he felt like he could do that because of the second half of the verse, because the Lord thy God redeemed thee. He was pulled out of that and he was able to lay into that as his adoption. I pray that that would be the same for you. Yes, no God, but rather you've been known by God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want, I purposely ended without, here's now what you need to do. Because there's so, our lives, this country, this, our society is all about do, do, do. What do we need to do next? How do we need to provide? How do we need to go? How do we need to be? I pray that we'll just sit in the presence of our adoption, the sought after, long sought after nature of our status with you and let that wash over us. We will find it'll have lots of implications. It'll have lots of movements in our life. It would change how we do and order our lives and where we spend our time and our efforts. But that's not primary, Father. Primary is letting ourselves sit in this space of beauty and chosenness that you are the God who waited and then went and paid to bring us in, bring us home. Father, we formally, we've we've thrown ourselves into the gods of nature and we can throw ourselves into the gods of religion and religiosity. And you're saying both are actually just different ways to stay away from you. Let us see that you've come towards us. That's why we can go to you. Help us, Father, not to just go through the motions and observe special days and months and seasons and years, just going, just sort of checking off boxes. Help us to have beauty and love and awe and worship well up, spring up in the midst of our hearts as we see what you've done for us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.